as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were, were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have not received the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man, who the, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand, understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, there's a section that talks about it's not okay to be split up into factions about who you listen to. It's not okay to be like, well, I like a Paul, I like Apollos, I like Cephas, well, I like Jesus, and I like all these different things and split up. It's not okay to do that with worship leaders, and it's not okay to do that with preachers. And to show you how much this has not changed, let me read from um, On the Priesthood, written by St. John Chrysostom in 386. On preaching, Okay, this is what preaching was like in 386 in Constantinople. He said, How great is the skill required for the teacher who is contending earnestly for the truth. But I have to mention one more matter besides this. What is that? He said this. The expenditure of great labor upon the preparation of preaching to be delivered in public. Now, why, is this, why does so much work have to be put in? Here's why he says. For to begin with, the majority of those who are under the preacher's charge— are not minded to behave toward them as toward a teacher. But instead, the majority disdain the part of the learner. Instead, they assume the attitude of those who sit and look on the public games. Just as the multitude there is separated into parties, attaching themselves, one to cheer for one group and one to cheer for the other, and the people are divided, and they become party now, this teacher now, that teacher, and they don't listen to what they can profit from the scriptures, but instead how they can view the preacher with either favor or spite. Right? So much has changed in 1700 years, right? Nothing has changed. And therefore, it's important that right now you do two things. One, you listen as Lloyd preaches God's word out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And two, while you're doing that, apply to your life 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to not be of Nick or of Lloyd or of— but to listen to the word of God preached through whoever preaches it, and God has, a, God has appointed through the means of our leadership that it be Lloyd. So listen to him and, and take what he says to heart and, and find something in there 
that you could take and you could apply from this scripture. Does that make sense? All right, look, brother, why don't you come and preach? Amen. Amen. Can you hear me? We good? Uh, thanks, Pastor Nick. Um, I really appreciate him giving me the opportunity to, to share the gospel uh, with you. Uh, um, Nick takes the, the preaching of the word very seriously. And so I consider it no small uh, honor that he would allow me to, to be before you this morning. So uh, thanks. Th thanks, Nick. Um, as I was preparing for this week's sermon, I was thinking about the cultural context in which Paul ministered when he visited Corinth around the mid-first century. Corinth was considered the most important city in Greece. It was a prosperous and bubbling hub of worldwide commerce, degraded culture, and idolatrous religion. The city was filled with shrines and temples, but the most prominent was the Temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Here, worshipers of the goddess made free use of a thousand consecrated prostitutes. This cosmopolitan city thrived on commerce and in entertainment, vice and corruption. Pleasure seekers would come there um, ask, seeking a holiday from morality. And it's funny, as I was studying ancient Corinth, how many uh, parallels I could make between that and modern Las Vegas. Nick was saying uh, not that much has changed since 348 or even A.D. 50. In Paul's day, the population of Corinth was about 700,000 people, of which two-thirds were slaves. The diverse population produced no significant philosophers, but Greek philosophy birthed in Athens, which was only 50 miles away, permeated the thinking of its citizens. In such an urban setting of paganism and philosophizing, Paul founded a church. In his letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we see the struggles he had working to form a healthy church out of a pagan society. Paul addresses a variety of concerns in his letters, the lifestyle of the Corinthians, including factions and lawsuits and Im immorality and abuse of the Lord's Supper and the disorderly use of spiritual gifts. And then I began to compare his ministry context to mine, indeed to ours. Now Madison is the state capital and it is a phenomenal university town. It's also a great sports town, I hate to admit that being an Illini. But of course with the Badgers winning and making it to the Sweet 16 and the great success of the football team, uh, I'm just hoping they fire their coaches and they come to Illinois. We're looking for coaches in Illinois. <laughs> In fact, the state of UW is the largest uh, employer, the state and the, and the university are the largest employers of people in the city. Nonetheless, the health, biotech, and advertising sectors have experienced substantial growth of the, over the past 10 years. In 2004, in fact, Forbes magazine reported that Madison had the highest percentage of PhDs of any city in the nation, and that its unemployment rate is historically amongst the lowest. But Madison is also home of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, 
which attempts to influence government matters relating to the separation of church and state. This foundation is known for its lawsuits against religious displays on public property and for advocating removal of in God we trust from all of our currency. Now the city's voters are generally much more politically liberal and progressive than voters in the rest of Wisconsin. For example, 76% of Madison's voters voted against a 2006 state constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage, even though the rest of the state passed that measure with 59% of the vote. Now, I've been living in Madison about six years. And I can tell you that even when you talk to people who profess to be Christian, they have some rather strange and liberal perspectives on the faith. Just a week ago, I was talking to a young man, highly educated, in his mid-30s. He's engaged to a woman who's studying medicine at the UW. I think there's a few people that fall into that camp in our congregation. He's Catholic, and she is Seventh-day Adventist. He wants to get married in his Catholic church here in Madison, but her father will have none of it. So they're kind of at an impasse. So I asked him, I said, you know, are, is this, are you guys compatible? Are your religious views compatible? Here's what he said. We both believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, so nothing else should matter. I can compromise a lot as long as we both believe in Jesus. And then I talked to another young man just this past week. He's also in his 30s, married, with children, used to attend High Point a little bit. I hadn't seen him in a while, so I asked him, kind of, you know, where, where you been? How's it going? And he said, you know, my wife was raised in the church, but I really wasn't. She was in Beloit, and, and she went to church services regularly. But as a couple, we have never regularly attended services together. I'm thinking, though, about coming back to the church so that my children can have a solid Christian foundation. My guess is that you know people who think along the same lines. It's into this cultural context that you and I are called to be the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul had similar circumstances. And um, so what did he do? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. In your pew Bibles, we're just going to look at 1 and 2. It's on page 1773. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Unlike the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers he encountered in Athens, Greece, when he addressed the Athenians at the Areopagus, or the philosophers he no doubt encountered over his 18 months of ministry in Corinth, Paul did not try to persuade men about the claims of Christ with worldly wisdom or eloquent rhetoric. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul tells us that his detractors said of him that his bodily presence was weak and his speech contemptible. Paul did not try to refute these rather uncomplimentary claims. He didn't even defend himself about it. Apparently, the manner of Paul's preaching was unimpressive from a human perspective. Apparently, the apostle did not display a commanding presence from the platform when he spoke. Nor was he tall, dark, handsome, or an erudite orator such as myself. But he was a well-educated man, and I would argue a brilliant writer and a defender of the faith. He was trained in the scriptures by Gamaliel, a highly respected Pharisee and doctor of the law. Paul's thorough presentation of the gospel in the book of Romans, especially his doctrine of sin, of justification, of sanctification, has been the adored subject of a lifetime of study for countless Bible scholars ever since his death. Um, I'm at Wheaton and I'm finishing up class. Pray for me. April, <laughs> April 30th, it's been a long haul. And I've been taking, uh, I took two classes from Dr. Douglas Moo. Uh, he taught New Testament theology at TEDS, probably taught Pastor Nick, and now he's at Wheaton College. In 1983, he wrote this, uh, he started writing this epistle to the Romans commentary, one book's commentary, a thousand pages. In the letter of introduction, he jokes that his daughter, who was only 12 years old, that he had been working on this commentary her whole life, 13 years spent on one of Paul's uh, letters. Uh, this one is a, is a mere trifling 420 pages by John Stott. Both of these gentlemen would say, and they would agree, as his readers from ancient days would say, that his, his writing was weighty and powerful. Paul deployed his full and considerable mental capacity in the power of the Holy Spirit to explain the gospel, to refute error, to defend his message. Some of what he wrote in his letters was even difficult for his hearers to understand without receiving further training. But despite all of his training in the scriptures, all of his obvious intelligence and skill, Paul realized that he could not make people right with God. It doesn't really matter how intelligent you are when it comes to the gospel. My intelligence is not going to save anybody. Paul recognized the same fact. Only the power of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God can accomplish salvation. For this very reason, when Paul traveled from Athens to Corinth, he preached the unembellished message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The death of Christ for sinners is a very powerful message once you come to understand it. I'm going to tell you about how I came to understand the gospel. Now, I come from Chicago on the west side of town, and I was raised a Catholic. It's a really strange story. I have a Baptist mom and an unbelieving father, and because of the generosity of some nuns in the community where we lived, 
my mom decided that all of her children were going to be baptized and confirmed Catholic. Now, I know who Jesus was, but I really didn't understand why I needed him. I was baptized as an infant. I was confirmed as an adolescent. I really loved my priests. Man, these were awesome men, godly men. Father Phelan and Father Flynn. What amazing godly men these were. From the time I was a child to the time I left for college, I was in mass most every week. Most people who knew me then would have said that this was a good kid, very polite, obedient to his parents, and as such. Jason and Jerry, you know a little bit about that. But then I went to college. And uh, I didn't have a good sense for, for who I was, like a lot of college kids. I bet there's some of you who can say amen to that. And I was looking for identity. So here's what I did. I pledged the fraternity, a black Greek organization that's active on Madison's campus to this very day. It's been around since 1914. And um, from that, I partied a lot and I fornicated a lot. Uh, that's, a, that's a big word for saying I was with women I shouldn't have been before the time. Uh, numbers of, of them. Rarely was I ever in church. I was a resident advisor and I was a fraternity president. Uh, one great thing that happened to me in college was that the president of the university, Stan Eikenberry, would call all the student leaders to his house once a year. And I happened to be at President Eikenberry's table um, for this occasion. He asked me, he said, Lloyd, what do you want to do once you finish with college? I was a junior. I said, you know, I, I think I want to go into banking. I was studying finance like my brother had. And uh, he said, you know what, I know the presidents of the banks in Chicago. What if I set up some interviews for you? And they set up, these interviews opened up my eyes. Lo and behold, a couple of years later when I finished, I began working at a bank in Chicago. Now, I was a young single man. There might be some like of that like you that might describe you. You're highly educated, got your first job, maybe have a little bit of money, a little freedom. Maybe you knew Christ, maybe you don't. And you've got to begin making some decisions that will impact your whole life. My bad habits with women continued. At one point, I was seeing two women at the same time. And the relationships were less than holy. But I was driving home from work one day. And I was, strong, I was struck by how wrong these relationships were. And my spirit was very troubled like it had never been before. Now, I wouldn't have thought in these categories at that time you know, early 20s. But now I would say that the Holy Spirit was convicting me. Um, but then I remembered something, something that Father Phelan and Father Flynn had said in Mass since I was three years old to the time I was 18. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, blessing it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat it. This is my body which is given up for you. When supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and praise, gave the cup to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and drink it. This is the cup of my blood. This is the cup of my blood. The blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all men so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. 
For the first time in my entire life, it was like a light bulb went off. I had an epiphany. I can understand why Jesus came, died, and rose again. It was so that my sins could be forgiven. So I accepted Christ in the car that day. You see, Jesus' blood redeems us. Jesus' death accomplishes the forgiveness of sin. Christ died on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. His death was effective then and is effective now for the forgiveness of your sins. That is why we call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the true Passover lamb. He was a male lamb without sin, without blemish. And he was a type. And so when the, when the ancient Hebrews uh, had the mass exodus on the night before when they ate their Passover lamb, they pointed to Jesus Christ. You see, the wrath of God which is real and which should be avoided was poured out on Jesus so that the grace of God could be poured out on you and me. What an awesome trade that is. I'm trading my sorrows and I'm trading my shame and I'm laying it down for the joy of the Lord. Yes, yes. I'm trading my sickness. And I'm trading my pain. I'm laying it, laying it, laying it down for the joy of the Lord. So I needed that commercial break so I could get some water. His blood not only redeems us, his blood justifies us. That is, Jesus' death results in our righteousness. Not only are our sins forgiven, through faith in his son, the father justifies us. That is to say, he declares us righteous. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a great trade. All of my shame, all of the, the negative relationships, all of the guilt at the cross given away. And in return, I get holiness, righteousness, sanctification in eternal life. What an awesome transaction that can only occur at the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only does his blood redeem us, not only does his blood justify us, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. It is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become our wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. So Jesus is also our sanctification. His death results in our holiness. We who now believe in Jesus Christ, 
who once were sinners set apart for death and condemnation, but now we are saints who have been declared holy by God. Isn't that an amazing thing? We are set apart to live in obedience to Christ and to enter eternal life with Him. So these three things, our redemption through the blood of Christ, our sanctification through the blood of Christ, our justification, these are the heart of the gospel. Now for three weeks, Nick, for two weeks, and now me, we have been preaching this gospel. And I've been praying that there might be some who are here who may be asking themselves, what must I do to be saved? I believe that almost every time we congregate, there are those who are uncertain about their salvation. So this is what we say. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not a complicated transaction. It's about faith and trust. It's recognizing that you are a sinner and you have sinned against the holy God, but that God has made provision for you, offered a savior who offers eternal life to you. So today is your day. This is the acceptable day for salvation. So you might just want to maybe take one of those yellow cards in the pew that Lisa talks about. And maybe if today you make that decision, write it on there. And somebody from our church will call and will pray with you. Or after service, see me or Nick or several elders are here. We'd be glad to, to talk to you about this. We would be delighted to talk to you about the next steps of faith. That is what the gospel about is all about. The gospel message is the wisdom of God. It is God's eloquence and it's higher knowledge than all the wisdom of men. You see, our God is not anti-intellectual. His excellent knowledge that's revealed to us in the scriptures is wisdom. And you and I could spend our whole lives studying the scriptures, analyzing it, and we would never be able to exhaust all of the treasures that are in there. It was interesting, my wife, uh, as I prepared her for sermons, she will talk about how many hours I spend doing it, and she'll also be like, Lloyd, is that all necessary? Do you have to read the background? Do you have to look at every word? And how many commentaries? Well, just recently, she was asked by the ladies to, to speak at the prayer service. And she had to speak three different 45-minute sessions on prayer. And she started about a month ago, and she was reading. She went through 25 to 30 books, either read or researched them. She spent over 80 hours trying to get ready. And the kids can be, are my witness. They, they, they miss dinner, too. She spent over 80 hours trying to get ready for, for this. And you husbands can empathize what great sacrifice that is. And uh, 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 it, it, it's, it's a tremendous sacrifice. Studying the Bible is, is scholarship and is wisdom par excellence. The wisdom that's in the scripture, there's no higher pursuit than that. The pursuit of such wisdom from studying the scriptures and looking at biblical scholars, 
I want to tell you it's scholarship of the highest order. In the, in the words of the late Dr. Merrill Tenney, former dean of the Graduate School of Wheaton College, God is the beginning of all thinking so that his personal revelation serves as the regulating factor in the acquisition of knowledge. Everything that comes at us, every idea, every thought, we Christians ought to take it captive. We ought to compare it against what we know to be true in our scriptures. And we ought to determine if we ought to accept it as truth, whether we ought to reject it as total error and foolishness, whether we ought to redeem it and take it to, uh, and take it to a more noble cause, align it to the noble cause of Christ. We have the mind of Christ that we develop as we study the scriptures and, and grow more. Now to a pagan community who was enamored with philosophy, Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the excellent wisdom of God. And this is the approach that we will continue to take as we seek to spread the gospel and God's glory here in Madison. Now Paul preached not just about the cross, and he would often say that um, his ministry was not just about words, but it was about power. And I want to share with you what I mean by that. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. This is 1773. I'll read it quickly. The gospel is more than words. It is about power. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling, my message were, and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with, were, were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. From verse 3 we read that Paul did not bring an intimidating presence. Instead, he came with a humble attitude and a humble perspective because he recognized that he was just a servant and a messenger. There was no need for him to boast. I kind of like the way John the Baptist talked about this and his particular call to preach the gospel. He told his disciples that he must decrease in terms of his ministry and that Jesus must increase. This is the kind of attitude that Paul brought to his preaching. If Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. However, Paul depended upon the Holy Spirit in him to work mightily as he faithfully and humbly went about his ministry of preaching the gospel. And he had this confidence because of a command that Jesus gave his disciples and because of a promise. The command from Matthew 28 was to go and to preach the gospel and convince all people, teach all people to obey everything that God had instructed and lo, he will be with us always. That is to say his spiritual presence is with us to empower us as we go about our ministry. And I like the way Acts 1-8 says it. Jesus told the disciples, and you shall receive power. You, Christian, have God's power and authority on your life. You shall receive power, and you shall be witnesses to me 
in Judea, in Samaria, and the other parts of the world. And when I send Jason and Jared to go to the store, as an illustration, I send them with my car, 250,000 mile, what is that car? Avalon, Toyota, Avalon. I send them with my car. I take money out of my wallet. I give them the cash. Deborah writes the instructions, and we give them a cell phone just in case you get lost. What I'm trying to tell you is that when God sends us to do his ministry, out into the mission field or into the community. He empowers us with his authority. He gives us spiritual currency to be able to accomplish our work in Christ Jesus. God gives us power in order to accomplish his work. Now Paul experienced this when he was on the mission field. Very briefly, what we find in his ministry is that his testimony was accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. When Paul preached, the Word of God states that the Holy Spirit opened up the minds of the listeners. We need the Spirit to be able to help the unbeliever, like me in my car, and the believer to be able to understand and comprehend. That's the ministry uniquely given to the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul preached, it opened up the ears of Lydia so that this businesswoman could receive him when he went to that town. When Paul reached, preached an action, also says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit as he addressed his, his listeners. He didn't just study the scriptures. He depended upon God to empower him, to give him supernatural ability to reason and persuade people so that they could receive the gospel. He had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And God testified to the truth of Paul's message, the scripture says, by working unusual acts through him. In certain instances, there were handkerchiefs that were taken from his body and aprons and they would be taken to the sick. This is Acts 19, 11, and 12. And diseases and evil spirits would leave them. He would curse the opposition who would be trying to detract from his message. And they would receive temporary blindness so that the gospel could go forward. This is Acts 13, 9 through 12. And people could receive it. And then there was a saint, a young man named Eutychus. And Paul was preaching too often, too late into the evening. And Eutychus was on the third story and on, sitting on a window ledge and fell asleep. And he fell three stories to his death. And Paul ran downstairs. The scripture says he laid on him and prayed. And his life returned to him. You see, for Paul, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit worked in tandems to make his ministry effective. As it was with Paul and the early Christians, so it is with you. When you see our ministers, both volunteers and employees, when I say ministers, I'm just talking about servants in general, accepting the challenges of going to two services with all the workload that's involved, doing it with grace and joy, looking forward to what God is going to accomplish. Someday this sanctuary is going to be filled and Pastor Nick will be preaching and those saints who got in line as he cast the vision, these are with joy, that takes 
the spiritual power. You are witnessing evidence of the power of the Spirit accompanying your gospel. When you see young adults in our assembly taking on new roles and responsibilities and doing them well with joy and grace and skill, you are witnessing evidence of the power of the Spirit accompanying our faith in the gospel. When you see saints who are opening up their hearts and minds and wallets to help people in the community who have fallen on hard times through no fault of their own, providing them with food and fellowship and shelter, you are witnessing the, and evidencing the power of the Holy Spirit accompanying our faith. And when you see saints in our midst who are able to withstand pain and suffering from life-threatening diseases for months and months on end without losing their faith you got elders who are body is racked with cancer, who are the first ones in the church building and the last ones to leave with a smile on their face, serving their families, serving their brothers and sisters. What I'm trying to tell you is that that's the Holy Spirit empowering us to do the work of the ministry. In conclusion, I want you to understand that the work of the Spirit is clearly manifested in the lives of a healthy church and each individual healthy Christian. The work of the Spirit is just as vital to our work today as it ever was. Without Him, that is the Holy Spirit, we have nothing more here than ritual and hot air. Therefore, Whenever you recognize his work on your children, whenever you recognize his work in our nursery ministries, whenever you see his anointing on Pastor Nick, rejoice in the Lord. Sincere faith is built up in us from the power of the message of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who reveals the gospel to the minds of those who come to faith. I think it can even be said of us, those of us who believe, those of us who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that we have the mind of Christ. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in us. The same gospel that he and his disciples preach is the same gospel that Nick and I preach. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us perfectly unites us. Perfectly unites us. Black and white, young and old, intellectual and third grade education meaningless because the Word of God and the Spirit of God perfectly unites us. It knits us together as one body. Brothers and sisters, this is the wisdom and the power of God. Let us pray.
Dear Lord, thank you for uh, uh, impressing upon Pastor Nick uh, to preach this uh, series, this study on 1 Corinthians so that we could come to understand the gospel better and to understand the power that we have to do your work. And Father, we thank you for uniting us together from all kinds of places. Asia, Africa, Chicago, New York State, many places, different philosophies, different political views, all together under your name. Lord, you are an amazing God. Only an amazing God could do something like that. So thank you, Lord. Bless your name and continue to use us, dust that we are, to accomplish your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.